All right. Good morning. My name is Derek. If I haven't gotten the chance to meet you yet, one of the pastors here, happy to be with you this morning. As we're continuing in this series where Jesus and his message and his followers all stand out from the world like a elephant in the room. Now, uh, this is a, a chance and opportunity for you to have your Bibles and uh, dust them off and open them up, so we'd love for you to do that. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. That shouldn't be a surprise for those who have been here the past couple of months. That's where we've been, Matthew chapter 5. But if you do not have a Bible, we have some ushers in the back who are ready to get a Bible to you, so if you just raise your hand, they will bring that to you. If you're just unfamiliar with the Bible, the book of Matthew is one of four really biographies of Jesus, and really he is the culmination of all the scriptures. And if you can't find where it's at, there's a table of contents in the front. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 5. Well, hopefully this doesn't come as a surprise to you, but Thanksgiving is this Thursday. <laughs> How many of you already have written out to-do lists and many things to get checked off, yeah. Now, be honest, how many of you, though, love to check things off to-do lists and cross them out? Yeah, there's my people. <laughs> now, on the one hand, I have to say that I have to have a to-do list because I am very prone to getting both distracted or just to stare off into the nothingness and the void and contemplate the deep things of the world or not to contemplate anything whatsoever. And uh, my wife's like, hey, back to the list. I'm like, oh yeah, 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 sorry, sorry. I don't, I don't know quite where I was. So on the one hand, I need them, but on the other hand, I really do love them. I mean, it just, check, or cross it off. It just makes you feel accomplished. Sometimes I'll do something and realize it's not on the list and I'll write it down just so I can check it off. None of you do that, I'm sure. But it makes you feel good. And, and I guess in a way, kind of checking off boxes, well, that might be how some people really view religion, right? It, it, it gets you on the, the right direction to know what to do, the right things, and then you can check it off and feel good, and once it's done, you can get on to doing the things you actually want to do. Is that, is that religion? Is that, is that right? Hmm. Last week we saw Jesus claim in verses 17 through 20 that he was the point of all the scriptures. And because of that, he is the one who is the ultimate authority to help us understand what they really mean. But then he finished by saying something else. He said that our righteousness, which is our ability to live and to be as God wants us to be, had to exceed, had to surpass that of the Pharisees. Now, when you read that, it might not mean much to you, but it should have you shaking in your boots a little bit because that's what it had the, for Jesus' earlier audience because they thought, more than the Pharisees, how could we possibly do that? They're the, the elite. They're our religious leaders. They are the ultimate list makers, box checkers. Those guys know what they're doing. They've got the whole law codified and listified. They knew what to do and when to do it. How can you possibly out-righteous, out-box-check them? Now, one important aspect that we looked at last week is that Jesus offers his own righteousness to us. 
if only we'll entrust ourselves to him in faith. But there's also something else, something that has to do with us understanding the fullness of the law. That it's not just a a flattened list on a piece of paper, but it's actually something with depth and dimension. So this morning, we're gonna look at two Old Testament laws that continue to be misunderstood. And in the spirit of thanksgiving and opportunities to be uncomfortable in large settings and have awkward conversations, we're gonna talk about murder and adultery. Does that that sound like a good Thanksgiving sermon for you? And here's the thing. These are two boxes that seem very easy to check off. But here's the thing I'm hoping that you'll walk away from this morning, the big point of the morning. Jesus isn't looking for checked boxes, but he's looking to change your heart. So let's begin here in Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Jesus starts by giving us our first box. You could call it the do not murder box, right? The sixth commandment that God gave to Moses at Sinai. It's found in Exodus 20, 13. So you believe me, I'll put it on the screen. You shall not murder. There it is. Easy to memorize. You could do it. And guess what? It's a very important command. It's a command that underlines the inherent value of all human life. It's the command out of the Bible that stands up and condemns the shooters in Las Vegas and in Sutherland uh, Springs and this week in Northern California. It's the command that says all human life is precious and we don't get to decide when it comes to an end. And on the face of it, Seems like a box that should be pretty easy to put a little check next to. I mean, sometimes in Christian circles, we'll talk about struggling, struggling with different sins. Anybody struggling with murder? Don't raise your hands. (laughs) Our seating arrangement will vastly change. No, but I want to tell you, this, this past week, I didn't kill anybody. And the week before, I didn't murder anybody either. And I am the dad of four kids. And I assistant coach soccer. I mean, I think I'm doing pretty good in this area. Let my righteousness be known. It's easy to check the box and then move on. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. All they cared about was the physical act of killing. Judgment, if you do it. And if you don't, you're one box check closer to being righteous. That's not how Jesus sees it. Verse 21, he says, you have heard, do not murder, then verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You see, Jesus is not content with just a boxy way of seeing it. If you're going to talk accurately about the sixth commandment, you also need to talk about anger. There was an article a while back in the Chicago Tribune, and the the title of the article was Rage, with an exclamation point. And in it, it talked about just these rising levels, calls anger an epidemic in the United States. And it cites road rage, and in the workplace, it calls it desk rage. And It's filled with these stories of explosive, angry behavior. 
And the article ends with a story of the, the main uh, psychologist being interviewed telling his own personal story, saying, so I got into the, the car with a friend, and as soon as I got in, I noticed that the passenger visor was missing. So what's the deal with the visor? And the guy driving says, oh, they don't even get me started. My wife ripped it off. And the guy's thinking, those things are pretty hard to get off, right? I mean, you need tools. You need uh, something serious. You know, explain to me how this happened. He says, I, I don't even want to get into it. She was just really angry, as if somehow that just kind of explains it away. Well, when was the last time you got really angry? Now, I don't mean ripping off visors from your car. I don't mean spitting in someone's face or getting into fisticuffs. I mean, when did you feel that anger just kind of rise up inside of you? And even, maybe you didn't even act on it. Now, there's a chance you didn't even notice it. it it's something we can, through reoccurring situations like this, start to become numb to it. And that's why I think Jesus gives these other examples. He adds on some other indicators, uh, words of contempt or abuse. But what Jesus is doing is not some sort of stair step like, okay, if you have this in your heart, it's this judgment. If you have this word that you say, it's this judgment and then this one. No, he's not stair stepping. He's giving a few examples to help us to see that we actually don't get to check off that box. All right, so you haven't killed anybody, but have you hated have you spoken bad of others so that other people would think less of them? Have you ever used words to really tear someone down? Have you ever wished someone was hurt or ill or even dead? You see, I'm guessing if we did the whole raise the hand thing now, all of our hands would go up. Jesus is saying this. He's saying righteousness is not just the external action, but it's actually the internal content of your heart. Now, is Jesus saying that these thoughts and words are the same as murder? No. Asked any bereaved parent or spouse of some of these recent slain people, and they'll certainly not say that they're the same, and I don't think Jesus is either, but what he is saying is that you cannot simply think that you have clean hands because you've never murdered anybody. Sin runs deeper than that, and it all disqualifies us before God. It all deserves eternal punishment, and we need to know it. A friend of mine, a retired pastor, recently gave me some books, and one of the books was actually a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And as I was reading it and reading this passage, I saw in the margins that he had written, I have failed at this. And it caused me to think about my friend and his character, his love for the Lord. It caused me to think more deeply about my own heart. and caused me to think more deeply about what Jesus is saying here. And I realized that it, it took me to the place that I think Jesus wants all of us to go. And so what I did is I wrote in the margin, me too. Me too. Because it's not about easily checking off the box. It's about checking your heart. And yet, Jesus doesn't want to just leave us at heart checking. He wants to take us to heart change and a new way to live. Now this morning, if you're not a follower of Christ, first of all, I'm very glad that you're here. You're welcome here. You're welcome to, to sing with us and, and check things out and, and try to understand who this Jesus is. 
But what you need to know before we move to the next section of his teaching is that it takes more than checking your heart to be made right with God. It takes actually admitting your sin before the living God and believing that Jesus alone can take it away. Only Jesus can make you right so that you can worship God. Only Jesus can get you off the hook with the divine judge. The core problem is this murderous heart, and the solution is that Jesus can change it. And what follows, what he has to say next, is only for those who have been changed. So let's continue to read verses 23 to 26. He says this, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus here has given us two pictures two stories to help us apply the truth. He has a man who's on his way to worship and then another man who's on his way to court. And what's unique here is that previously Jesus has been talking about the anger that we have, but here he's talking about how you can help the person that you have provoked to anger. I think Jesus does this because he knows that his followers, even with new hearts, are gonna mess it up. And yet, he, he gives us a different way to go. We don't need to respond to these situations with murderous thoughts or words and actions. He wants us instead to be people who are defined by reconciliation and love. That's the new trajectory of the Christian. Jesus is saying, those who follow me won't only try to temper their anger, they will actually be reconcilers. They won't just try to guard their own thoughts, but they'll try to guard the hearts and thoughts of others. And this first story is to teach us that reconciliation is more important than religious duty. Can we agree it's a lot easier to show up to church and to sing the songs and to take communion and to give money than it is to actually go to the brother or sister in Christ that we've offended and figure things out? that's way harder. I know this is true in my life. I'm, I'm good at the ceremony. I'm good at the acts of worship. Nobody else tells me this, but I even think I'm good at the singing part. <laughs> the Lord knows. But you know what I'm not good at? It's not my natural inclination when I've wronged someone, even though I feel that tension in my gut. Oh, I just don't want to go and do that. I guess I just will never talk to them ever again. Is that how you respond? D.A. Carson, a great Bible scholar, says this. He says, men love to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity, and love, but Jesus will have none of it. Jesus calls on us to be reconcilers. The second story Jesus gives is to show the urgency of reconciling. He's essentially saying, before you get sued, before your reputation gets dinged, before you smear the name of Christ, make it right. The idea is to not, don't put off reconciliation. Don't put off love. 
Put it on. Make it happen. Now, Jesus does not expect the person who follows him to get it right every time, which is comforting. But he does expect us to be becoming these sorts of people who seek reconciliation, people who don't wait for the other person to make it happen, people who are sensitive to the hurts of others and aim to bring healing. We already looked at Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus isn't looking for checked boxes, but to change your heart so that we can be a people full of love and reconciliation. Then Jesus moves to the, to the second box. Verse 27, he says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Now we talked about the sixth commandment before, now we're moving on to the seventh. Now again, this should be an easy box to check, but unfortunately, in today's hyper-sexualized culture, it doesn't just make it difficult, it makes most people think it's not even necessary at all. There's an article this week in the National Review, authored by the name of David French, says this. He says, you can sum up the new sexual ethic in one sentence. Consenting adults define their own moral norms. One night stands, fine, so long as there's consent. May-December relationships, fantastic, so long as there's consent. Workplace liaisons between boss and subordinate, no problem with consent. Adultery, yes, there are tears, but the heart wants what it wants. Now, he's speaking against this, but he's saying this is the predominant message of the culture. And yet, God clearly affirms a clear stance on this. And he's not only speaking of marital infidelity, but any infidelity to the, uh, from the intended purpose of sexual relationships, which are between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. This is what God intended in our creation. This is what is best for us uh, relationally. This is what provides strength for families to thrive. And God's saying, I want your best, so do not commit adultery. But even this law, this box to check, isn't just what it seems. It's more. Let's continue to read verses 27 and 28 again. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's a heavy verse. And it's not just for men. It's also for women. Jesus is saying it's not just these non-marital acts of sex that's adulterous that goes against God's design. It's also our adulterous thoughts, our adulterous desires, these adulterous yearnings from within our heart. And with this one statement, Jesus helps us to see the very heart of the original law. It's not just the absence of action, but it's a design for a full purity of life. Now I wanna be clear Jesus is not condemning attraction. He's not condemning noticing physical beauty, but he is speaking against impure thoughts, lustful imagination, a sort of mental sexual theft and attack in the mind. These, Jesus says, are also ways of breaking God's laws and in God's eyes for you to be seen as an adulterer. Now for the past Month, I think it's been now. The news has been filled 
with accounts and stories of sexual harassment and impropriety and even rape. It all started with the Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein. You can't open any newspaper without seeing his name somewhere right now. But since then, it seems about daily we get a new name, a new perpetrator, a new accuser of some man who's in Hollywood or business or politics. And through, through all this mud that's out there, I find it curious that the people, the, the same people who actually have been aiding in this over-sexualization of our culture, the actors, the directors, the comedians, the singers, that they cannot, con- uh, they cannot condemn each new story and each new perpetrator fast enough. They're practically falling over themselves and over each other in order to declare their own righteousness that they have not transgressed the single rule that society still holds up, which is of what? Consent. And don't get me wrong, they should be condemning these actions. They are despicable. They are adulterous, abusive, perverse. But what I continue to find missing from the headlines and the stories is the acknowledgement that the biggest difference between the Harvey Weinsteins of the world and those who get to point their finger at him is not actually righteousness, but simply these people didn't have enough power to think they could get away with it. What if they, the finger pointers, what if you and I were able to be brought up on charges for sexual harassment, for every inappropriate thought we had toward another person. That's what Jesus is getting at. Sin is not limited to what you have the power to commit. Cowardice or lack of opportunity does not make you holy in the eyes of God. It says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, for the Lord does not see as sees not as man sees. Man looks toward the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And that goes for both virtue and vice. When God looks at your heart, could it be that it's maybe a lot more like Harvey Weinstein's than you previously thought? Now the condemnation is right, but it should also cause us to reflect. When God looks at your heart, Do you understand what it is that he sees and is grieved by? Jesus said, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, quoting the scholar D.A. Carson, after he quoted those words of Jesus, he says this, I write this line was shame. Which one of us is not guilty of adultery? Similarly, 50 years earlier, another pastor and theologian, A.W. Pink, writes, must not all of us lay our hands upon our mouths and condemn ourselves as offenders in the sight of God? And so once again, I find myself wanting to write into the margins of my books, me too. It's not about easily checking off the box, but about checking your heart. But again, then again, Jesus doesn't want to leave you there. He wants to take you beyond that to real heart change and a real new life. 
final verses, 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, hey, I'm back. Cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now again, this, this part's not gonna make sense unless you have let Jesus' words drive you to understand the sort of spiritual bankruptcy that you can't do anything, you can't be good enough, you can't ever achieve and earn something from God and that should be followed by repentance and faith. To repent is the act of turning away from the self focus in sin-oriented life you once knew, and faith is turning towards Jesus, believing he and he alone has the life to give to you. Because as we saw in verse 28, sin's primary cause, it's not your hand, it's not your eye. It's the wickedness of your heart. And God isn't looking for dismembered people, but holy people. And to get you there, Jesus is willing to cut out your heart of stone and to give you instead a new heart of flesh. But only Jesus can change you from the inside out. And when he does, Jesus is then calling us to be radically pure. He says be radically pure. This means that followers of Christ, once again, are not concerned with just mere external actions, external purity, but purity in our thoughts and our desires, and we need to be willing to cut away whatever is working against that. And let's be real, Jesus uses some vivid imagery in order to get that point across, does he not? But again, it's not limited to the literal, because if you cut out your right eye, your left eye is still going to lust. And you can gouge out both eyes and make a man blind, but if his heart has not been changed, his imagination can still run wild. No. Jesus is using two prized body parts, the eye and the hand, to show that we are to deal drastically with sin. To quote D.A. Carson again, we must not pamper it, flirt with it, enjoy nibbling a little bit of around the edges. We're to hate it. We're to crush it and dig it out. Even if it hurts. Even if it embarrasses us. Far better to seem maybe a, a little eccentric in this lifetime than to miss out on the life eternal God has for us. As another scholar writes, better to go limping into heaven than leaping into hell. There's a guy I knew in high school, and uh, his brother actually told me the, the story of their remote control for their cable box went missing. They couldn't find it for about a week or so, and so they ordered another one. And they had it for about a day or two, and then it went missing again. And still, another week goes by and doesn't show up. And they think they're just the worst family ever at misplacing things. And so they order a third remote control. And it, it arrives, and not even a day later, they find it in pieces in the trash. They knew it was time for a family meeting. So they get everyone together, and this brother of my friend ends up having to confess 
and he tells them that he had figured out how to hack the cable box in order to watch pornography, but he had to use the remote control in order to do it. Convicted by this passage, he took a hammer and he beat the crud out of that remote control in order to take away, to cut away the access that he did not have the strength to deny on his own. He got radical about his purity. And Jesus and Paul both call on us to do the same thing. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. There's a 17th century theologian named John Owen, and he says it this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. He's inviting you. Jesus is inviting you to take an active role in your purity because it can kill you, but not just you. Dr. Pat Fagan of the Family Research Council did research, and they uh, actually did some extensive research talking with divorce attorneys, and they discovered that 56% of divorce cases had at least one party involved in watching pornography. Dr. Fagan says it, it corrodes the conscience, it promotes distrust between spouses, and debases untold thousands of young women. And so his conclusion at the end of the report is this, pornography is a quiet family killer. Now, pornography is not the only way for lust to be at work, but it is a big one. So the question is, for you individually, what are the things that you are seeing? What are the things that you are hearing? What are the influences in your life that are leading you to temptation, that are leading you to sin, that are leading you and possibly your family to death? Get rid of it. Is it through your computer? You can get rid of it. You can get tracking software or you can just put it in a public space. Do something that's going to help you. Is it on your smartphone? Delete that app or trade it out for a flip phone. It will be embarrassing. <laughs> Who cares? Save your soul. Is it a person that you like to accidentally make plans to bump into so you can flirt and have conversation? Change your patterns. Change your schedule. Now, will these actions, will these little limitations save and fix your heart? No, only Christ can do that. But what he's asking you to do is to live in such a way that you take the danger seriously, both men and women, and to do what you can to lead your heart to love Jesus more. Because Jesus isn't looking for checked boxes. He's looking to change your heart so that we can be people who are radically pure, who then get to enjoy the fullness of the life that Jesus has to offer. Oswald Chambers compares us to mariners sailing along the coast who must constantly avoid and be vigilant to watch out for rocks. But the thing that Oswald Chambers fails to note in this great picture is that the point of being in the boat is not to avoid rocks. You're trying to get somewhere. That's why you're in it. You see, the more you are in love with the destination, the more you are in love with Jesus, the more fiercely you will stand vigilant to keep the rocks of lust and anger from taking your ship down. Now, checking boxes, that can be helpful for packing for a trip or for getting your place ready for Thanksgiving. But even then, we, we can see where they fail, that they can't do it all, because the list can tell you what you need to do, but it can't tell you how you need to do it. 
case in point, I can tell my boys to clean their room and I might walk in and I can see the floor again. But then as soon as I look at their dressers, everything's just shoved in all the ways that's not what I want at all. Or when people are coming to your house for Thanksgiving and a couple hours before you are still trying to figure out where everything needs to go. We don't need that room. All right, shove it all in. You know you've done it. Lock the door. Hope nobody needs to use the bathroom. I recommend picking a different room. The house looks clean, but we know that it really isn't. And so today, this is what Jesus is saying. Let me in. I'll clean the whole house. I'll get rid of the trash, the mess, the decay. I know you love some of it. I know you want to hang on to it. But here's the thing. If I come in, I get to decide what stays and what goes. And only I can really make it clean. After I do this, you're not off the hook. We have some work to do together. But it will be a whole new home if only you will let me in. Because that's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to change your heart and your whole life. And if he makes you different, you're going to be different. Different from who you were and also very different from the world. And the world just might notice. Jesus isn't looking for checked boxes, but to change your heart. So if you know him and trust in him, then be a reconciler. Be radically pure. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, can I please just, with all my being, say you need him. And if you are willing, please join me and make this prayer I'm about to pray your own. Father God in heaven, I thought that I could be good enough. I thought I could check all the boxes. But today I see my sin clearly before me. It is an offense to you and it is judgment for me. And so I throw myself onto your mercy. Please forgive me. By the blood of your son Jesus, forgive me and grant me a new heart. Give to me your Holy Spirit that I might live for you and your name and your glory. And by the power and name of Jesus Christ, amen.